Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivaglani, and today I'm really happy to welcome one of the scientists responsible for the renaissance in psychedelic research that we've been exploring recently on the Raise Line podcast. Here are just a few of Dr. Matthew Johnson's contributions to the field. He's one of the world's most published scientists on the human effects of psychedelics. He helped establish psychedelic safety guidelines. He published the first research on psychedelic treatment of tobacco addiction in 2014. He received the first grant from the U.S. government in over half a century to directly study therapeutics of a classic psychedelic. And he is a co-founder and president of the International Society for Research on Psychedelics. Dr. Johnson is also a professor in psychedelics and consciousness and psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Johns Hopkins University and has conducted widely cited research in behavioral economics, behavioral pharmacology, and behavior analysis. Areas of focus include the decision-making underlying addiction and the effects of drugs on sexual risk behavior. You may already be familiar with him because Dr. Johnson has established himself as a go-to resource for journalists at major outlets such as the New York Times, Washington Post, and 60 Minutes, and you may have also seen him on Big Think, the Andrew Huberman podcast, and the Lex Friedman podcast. So Matt, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks, Shiv. Pleasure to be with you. Um, one one thing I'll update is I, I'm a former president of the International Society for Research on Psychedelics. <laughs> oh, you already were doing so much. So I'm glad to hear there's uh, one less thing completely on your plate. So it frees you up to do more, <laughs> even other things. Um, so, you know, we always like to start with just getting your background. Like what got you interested in psychiatry and behavioral pharmacology and then ultimately psychedelics? Well, I'm a psychologist, so um, what got me interested in psychology is well, really you know, wanting to understand what drives a human behavior. I mean, to me, these are interesting questions, uh, you know, the ability to apply a, a natural scientific understanding to understanding behavior. I was really attracted to the work of when I was in college of B.F. Skinner. Um, I was a former um, engineering major and kind of took a leap out of that because I didn't really see that path as being one that led me in a direction that I really wanted to to go into. Um, so the idea that one could understand uh, behavior from uh, a, scientific, a truly scientific perspective and then, you know, the idea that one could bring those tools to bear on helping people and addressing the many problems that are behaviorally mediated, which is essentially all of the, all of the problems <laughs> individually <laughs> and planetarily. Um, yeah, I was really attracted. And, and then, you know, sort of the interest in psychedelics were a subset of my broader interest in psychoactive substances that interface with that interest in behavioral science. Um, the idea that these compounds, anything from caffeine to alcohol to the illicit, you know, substances, um, including psychedelics, could have such a profound effect on behavior, on the mind, if you will. And so, yeah, those were sort of the seeds that led to my interests. Yeah, no, and I'm glad you talk a bit more about um, how behavior does result in pretty much all the all the problems and all the solutions ultimately. I went to med school at Hopkins initially to be a surgeon, but changed my course because I met a stage four cancer patient who had been smoking for decades, uh, many pack years of smoking, and the financial and emotional cost to him and his family to treat this cancer that may have been prevented had he we had been able to intervene behaviorally through education, counseling, et cetera, maybe psychedelics, um, got me really more interested in primary care, psychiatry, and and ultimately now psychedelics too. So that was that was first how I heard about your work, um, is the landmark smoking cessation work. Can you take us back to the origins of your work on that? And for our audience that may not be familiar with it, some of the, the highlights of the work uh, around smoking cessation. Yeah, I have been very interested for a long time. I mean, dating back to my undergraduate years, but the history of research with psychedelics. So there was a sort of initial heyday from the late 50s to the early 70s before the rug was pulled out um, for a lot of reasons, the association with the counterculture the and some very real casualties from, you know, reckless use by a lot of people. Um, you know, that said, there are a lot of people with credible claims of it having profoundly benefited their life, but, you know, it, it's complex as, as, 
as most things that are you know powerful um are and you know consistent with my interest in psychoactive drugs and their effect on the mind and behavior i was very interested in that older research on alcoholism being treated by lsd there was a little bit of research treating opioid addiction with lsd and then there's all these anecdotes of people quitting all sorts of different substances and i had had a history going back to very early grad school and conducting research on nicotine and tobacco from various and i've done all kinds of work in in the years since with nicotine tobacco basic behavioral economic analyses looking at the role of nicotine and tobacco reinforcement really what what motivates and drives continued behavior um treatment questions uh the interactions with other with other substances even substances like like cocaine and caffeine um so nicotine and tobacco were in my wheelhouse as a scientist and the emerging picture that i was seeing with psychedelics and, and, and addiction was a very different one from other forms of addiction treatment certainly very different than anti-addiction medication um, in the sense that it seemed like we were dealing with a generalized anti-addiction potential efficacy with psychedelics that transcended the particular substance of a of abuse that was the source of the addiction. And so with most addiction medication, the effects are typically relatively specific to that particular substance. So in other words, you're treating tobacco use with nicotine replacement therapy, either patch, gum, lozenge, et cetera, even, you know, e-cigarettes really broadly defined, you know, as essentially substitutes, you know, ways to quell the reinforcement, um, withdrawal, craving effects by stimulating or interacting with that, with that primary receptor mediating the effects of the substance of concern, but in a different, you know, in a way that's less harmful to the person. So, exact same story with any other you know so-called agonist or substitute uh, treatment so including methadone and buprenorphine for for opioid addiction so it it really looked from these from the scattering of older research and really rounding that out just the the complement of stories that you know, were just anecdote at that point that that when people recovered, it sounded more like good psychotherapy or in some sense, 12 step in the sense that, you know, this is not about just sort of uh, quelling the response to that drug of abuse, you know, addressing it that way. You can put it in many different ways, but it's about the, the narrative of your life. It's about the role that's fit, what's meaningful to you, um, these big picture decisions about, you know, you know, what is life about people finding themselves going down the primrose path they never would have you know wanted a priori to be you know spending so much of their time their money you know taking the health risks etc dedicated to using this you know whatever the particular you know substance is so big picture insights in, in successful treatment with these methods you know therapy 12 step things like and 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 I should say most people that recover from virtually any substance don't get any formal treatment of any of these types. But so in more consistent with those stories, too, where someone just comes to a point in their life and they in one way or another say, I'm done. This does not fit with me anymore. And it's usually this there's a narrative there. It's something about, you know, this big picture stuff. And, you know, it's not you can describe it through humanistic psychology terms, you know, spiritual terms, if you will, about this kind of um the big picture of your life and and what is meaningful in life what is life about but it's also you know just the way i would put it as a behavioral psychologist it's it's about your behavioral economy the degree to which one reinforcer in life has hijacked things such that other aspects of your life you recognize are suffering there's a narrowing of this behavioral which in my view includes the mental but this this narrowing of the behavioral uh, and mental repertoire um, in a suboptimal way. And so the picture to me was that these stories of people overcoming addiction with um, psychedelics sound more like that stuff, you know, successful psychotherapy or successful 
you know, 12 step or just successful, you know, coming of age, getting to that point in your life and deciding enough is enough and, and taking some, you know, big picture changes in your life. And so, so I thought, why not? Why not smoking? There were a little bit of questions I had about, oh, you know, some of the narratives with um, addiction recovery, particularly when we're talking about very intoxicating substances like alcohol and opioids that that typically have more life disruption than something like, you know, tobacco addiction, you know, very, you know, rarely does someone like ruin their marriage, their kids are estranged from them, they've ruined their job or their career because of tobacco, you know, cigarette addiction, but, you know, not necessarily typical, but it's certainly more common with these other more intoxicating substances. So there was some question like, is psychedelic recovery dependent on a rock bottom effect? In fact, the very early researchers in Saskatchewan, Canada, doing work with LSD and alcoholism, that was their model that, oh, when do a lot of people get better with alcoholism? It's when they get the DTs and, and you know, they nearly die and then they, they sober up because they're they're scared to death because they've hit rock bottom. The problem is that something like a quarter, I believe at the time of folks that had some full scale DTs, like ended up dying. So, oh, is there a way we can instigate this type of dramatic, scary, scared straight effect without killing someone? It's like, oh, here's this you know newfangled drug LSD that in the prevailing model at the time, temporarily makes people feel like they're psychotic but it's freakishly safe at the physiological level there's some risks for some particularly vulnerable populations and we can talk about that later if you want but for for most people that you know aren't suffering from so let's say severe heart disease you know there's no known lethal overdose so this now people can die from you know being intoxicated and wandering into traffic you know etc but at the at the pure it doesn't kill your liver doesn't make you stop breathing doesn't give you a stroke you know, hard track the way that, you know, if you lethally overdose on most substances, it's one of those types of ways. It doesn't come anywhere, you know, it doesn't have those um, effects. So it's like, can we model those DTs? And so there's a little bit of question, like, since people don't have rock bottom effects on tobacco, will this really work? So there's some curiosity there. But I also, I scoured um, websites like blue light and arrowhead for stories and lo and behold even though no one had really ever made a thing out of this there's these little trip reports out there here and there sprinkled amongst millions of reports it said yeah i took a big dose of acid or mushrooms and folks will say i just quit smoking and this was like a month ago or a year ago or five years ago or more and then i got interested i started asking stories of people and i i remember meeting someone uh actually at Burning Man in 2005 that said, oh, he quit smoking. It was something like 40 years ago on a big LSD, therapeutic LSD trip for something else. He wasn't taking it therapeutically to quit smoking. So all of that together, just, um, you know, I thought, hey, let's let's test this. It was interesting. If it worked, it kind of would add to this um, complementing the, the older science. It would It would be consistent with this idea that there's this very general anti-addiction efficacy, which would be exciting. It would it would be somewhat of a test of whether it only worked with sort of drugs that typically come with a rock bottom effect, as I described. Um, and then, you know, it's a great model system of addiction because it's a regulated, you know, commercial product. Everyone knows how many cigarettes you smoke a day, whether they buy a pack once every day or once every two days or three days or once a week. Um, there's multiple, and this is a big advantage compared to alcohol, which I was considering getting into. Um, but there's a big advantage that there are multiple ways to, to pretty cheaply biologically verify with a pretty accurate, uh, time course with alcohol. If you want that type of at anywhere close to accuracy, you have to get people to wear essentially a scram bracelet, like basically a prison bracelet, you know, around your ankle or something or, or hair analyses, which, can tell you something about whether someone's used the substance over the last several months, but there's essentially no temporal resolution around it. Um, so there's a lot of like really, you know, methodological scientific advantages as a model system of addiction to look at tobacco. But then you step back and also it's like, oh yeah, it's a good model system of addiction, but it's kind of a problem in itself. I mean, just to take one metric, the number of deaths, it just, it absolutely wipes the floor with everything else. In the U.S., we're talking about almost a half million people a year that die from smoking with the vast majority with 
about 69% of adults in the U.S. who smoke wanting uh, to quit. And that that number of a half million a year just is like it's orders of magnitude beyond uh, most other substances. It's four times the number of people that die from alcohol. And then all of the illicits, if you plot these things on the same figure on a linear scale, all of the illicit substances put together are barely visible wow. on the same graph when you compare it to, you know, alcohol and then <laughs> tobacco deaths. Wow. So you know, besides being a good model system of addiction, it's kind of important in itself. Right. <laughs> you know, so it's like if we could you know, bring this to bear to help a small percentage of those people, I mean, it would be huge. So. Absolutely. That's super compelling. I appreciate your thought processes, you know, which is which is useful for our audience because many of them are early stage researchers and healthcare professionals. And as they decide what paths to follow, what what diseases to focus on, et cetera, you know, kind of hearing your thought processes is, is helpful for them. And many of them probably are interested in this problem of smoking cessation. Um, to add to the death toll you were mentioning, uh, I pulled up the CDC data, um, which as of 2018, which is the latest I could see, you know, cigarette smoking costs the U.S. over $600 billion. So 240 billion in healthcare spending, 185 billion in lost productivity from smoking related illnesses. So COPD, asthma, et cetera, lung cancer. And then 180 billion in lost productivity from smoking related premature death. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a tremendous, you know, if this could be effective for, for that, which again, you're one pioneering a lot of that research. Um, so what, what did you find? Like, what have you found as far as how efficacious the psilocybin trials were or other psychedelic maybe trials relative to patch or other uh, interventions for, for smoking cessation? So the, the pilot study, which we published had 15 people, it was an, a non-randomized, you know, small pilot study. And, you know, we wanted to test the waters, uh, wasn't even worth my, you know, unless I saw a good signal with a small sample like that. One, I couldn't hustle up more money for, you know, <laughs> so that pragmatically limited things. But it also, um, you know, I wouldn't have wanted to spend the time with a very large randomized trial unless I even thought there was a potential signal there. You might try it in 10, 15 people and it's a complete flop. And so, yeah, test the waters. But it looked really promising. So all of that said, the results of that type of study could only show whether it's worthy of continued research. You can't prove anything um, about the the drug itself. But we we got 80% of people at six months after their quit date were biologically confirmed with both urine cotinine and breath carbon monoxide, two of those biological metrics I mentioned, um, and self-report, you know, abstinent. And, and that held up with a very long-term follow-up of two and a half years, which is wow. well beyond what most studies probe. Our initial results were so interesting. We actually applied to the Institutional Review Board to invite people back to do another biologically confirmed assessment. And on average, it was two and a half years after their quit date, and that was 60% of people. So those are just you know, insanely high numbers for the field. Again, with the caveat that you know this isn't a randomized study comparing to these other things, but you know, typical results like the best medication that's ever been looked at in the field is um, varenicline, which people may know by the brand name Chantix. With something, the studies vary from the mid 20s to mid 30s, you know, maybe upwards close to 40% at six months. Mm. Um, you know, so somewhere from the 20s, 30s percents typically um, at six months compared to 80% in terms of point prevalence, abstinence. So, so if that question is, is this worthy of follow-up? The answer was absolutely. And so we recently conducted the final session for the six-month uh, data on the second trial, which is a randomized trial. It was a comparative efficacy trial, randomizing over 80 treatment-resistant smokers to either nicotine patch treatment or um, the psilocybin intervention. And so in this case, just one psilocybin session. The initial study was three psilocybin sessions, but there were some reasons why we scaled it down to, to one. But So these aren't official results yet. The most recent analysis that I have to report today is based on a, a peak I took at 61 patients. It's not a blinded study, so I can still um, speak to the results without taking a statistical hit. Uh, but 
you know, I really have to emphasize it's, you know, the only results that count are the ones at the end, but the last stab at 61 people with about 30 in each group, um, the results were depending on how you, how you count it um, in, in the 50 percent at one year follow up, you know, for example, a, a 52% in the, in the psilocybin group compared to 27% in the nicotine patch group at one year, which is actually um, on the, certainly on the upper side of what you get when you look at the results across the literature for nicotine replacement, including nicotine patch one year out. So 27% is very good. And so that's, uh, that was very encouraging. And, and so stay tuned because we'll be submitting our results of that trial relatively soon with the final results, which will be, looks like a sample of 82 people. And a little bit earlier when we had those data, we used those data to apply for a government grant, a, a National Institute on Drug Abuse grant. Long story, but eventually got it. <laughs> we have that funding. We've had some logistical problems in starting the, the study, getting a hold of the study medication and some legal issues. Uh, but we're close to starting you know, that trial, that's going to be a blinded trial and it's cross-site with University of Alabama, Birmingham and New York University as other sites in the, in the study. Yeah, so that's where we're at now. Um, the study we're finishing up is a comparative efficacy study. As I mentioned, there wasn't blinding. I, I really wanted that as the next step because as, as someone who's been in the field for years and I, I've personally been in dozens of psychedelic sessions, it you know, you really are modeling something weird with double-blind studies with psychedelics. I'm not saying it shouldn't be done. I, I, there's no such thing as the perfect experiment. There's always pluses and minuses to any particular design. The real overall results come from, you know, a human being looking at those different studies and sort of triangulating uh, across those results. But, you know, you do see these weird things, like you warn the person in a psychedelic study, oh, this may be one of the most terrifying experiences of your life and it, you know all these wild things that have, it, you're just to some degree impossible to fully describe to them you know may happen and you know you may think you're dying but we'll hold your hand through it i mean it's it's a clinical vulnerability that really rivals perhaps anything else in medicine i mean certainly going under surgery there's complete trust it's like yeah i'm trusting these people to cut me open but at least i'm unconscious during that time <laughs> you know it's not like oh you know i mean i've had multiple vets they've experienced combat that have said this re has replaced that as being the most intense experience of their life. I mean, that's, it's hard to overstate, you know, how serious people describe this experience. So when you set that scenario up and then, oh, in a placebo controlled trial, you might be guessing, you know, an hour and I haven't felt anything, hour and a half, you know, you're modeling something that is very bizarre as you could imagine. Like people are really, really worked up and then nothing happens you're modeling something that's never going to happen, basically, and straight up clinical. And I could tell you it's really, really weird. Again, I'm not saying we shouldn't do placebo-controlled trials, I think, but it needs to be complemented. But that comparative efficacy study, that's the way you treat a new psychotherapy where blinding is impossible. And we have tons of evidence, and we know a lot about mental health treatment through psychotherapies. I mean, some of our most effective treatments in mental health are, I would say, psychotherapy, such as the treatment of anxiety disorders, phobias, this type of thing, through systematic desensitization and prolonged exposure therapy. Um, you know, very effective. None of that's been done under blinded conditions because it's not possible. So you take someone who's willing to do, has the disorder, they're willing to do one of the, you know, multiple treatments, the two different treatments, you randomize them and you, and you follow the results and 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 yes some or all of it could have been driven by placebo effect but you know hopefully then in other studies you can determine whether it's all driven by placebo effect i mean we do know with psychedelics that the subjective experience we're pretty confident that's not just placebo effect some really dramatic things happen biologically you know that account for the very altered state of awareness during psychedelics you know, what we don't know, for example, is how much expectancy is driving those ultimate therapeutic results with decreases in depression or addictive behavior. So that's where we're at now with, with the smoking cessation work. And so we'll have to wait for the final results of that current randomized uh, comparative efficacy study. And then those results from the newer, soon to start double-blind multi-site trial.
That's fascinating. I'm really excited to read those papers when they come out. And uh, thanks for the, the preview. Um, I like your analogy to surgery because um, actually just last week at the Psychedelic Science Conference in Denver, which I'll ask you about in a second, I met um, the co-founder of uh, Journey Collab, mm-hmm. which is working with masculine uh, rehab centers yeah. to... Yeah, and, and the various rehab centers, and it's uh, his name is Jishan Chowdhury, and yeah. actually uh, we've covered we've covered a lot of AI on this podcast, and his board member, executive board member, Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI. So it's ah, very mm-hmm. interesting intersection between AI and psychedelics. We can talk about it in a bit too, um, but he talks about you know rather than psychedelic assisted therapy, maybe calling it psychedelic surgery or something like that mm-hmm. that speaks to how how serious this can be and often is, um, and also you know puts healthcare providers and patients in the mindset of there's a pre-op, there's the operative and there's post-op. And a lot of the pre-op is informed consent post-op. There's, you know, often acute hospital stay, not necessarily, you don't necessarily need that in psychedelic therapy, it seems, but maybe with some populations you do, but, um, you know, having real follow-up, like the integration period that people talk about with psychedelic assisted therapy. So I like your surgery analogy there too. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about PS 2020. You can respond to that, but also, Talk about PS 2023. I assume you were there. Yeah. You, you know, what were your takeaways from it? And if you prognosticate with the next year, couple of years, what are you most excited about or worried about when it comes to psychedelic assisted therapy? Um, it was a really fascinating meeting. There's, uh, you know, uh, a lot of good friends and colleagues that have been in this field. Um, so it's good to catch up with folks. What a demonstration that the field has expanded, and it's coming with all kinds of things as one expands, especially when you're talking about a powerful tool. Like Things are getting complicated. There's going to be good and bad. And one of the critiques, I actually read a, a recent really good article, um, in part drawing from the, the meeting by Jules Evans, you know, really critiquing this kind of new religion component the psychedelic science area. And I, I've been really concerned about that because I see even within the deepest layers of science, there is a, it's very difficult to trust people with this, with magnitude of, of effect in people. And I'm, I still have my hopes and my bets on the idea that there's going to be more good than bad, but it's going to get really ugly. I mean, there's going to be cults there. There already are. I mean, there's this, bizarre even hero worship of scientists and some of them are you know let's just say some of them embrace that role and and really kind of like want to play the guru as if they have the mystical secrets to everything and and just and i can tell you people can get really unbalanced and uh there's going to be a lot of harm i think there's going to be more benefit but i think we saw threads threads of that at the meeting and some concern about that the kind of the the new religion kind of aspects of this that people pretty routinely have these experiences that what they will you know say i mean it's hard to understate the, the you know the magnitude with which many people describe these experiences you know um that's just a very you know difficult thing to hold in a responsible way and at the same time as this field is getting it's really exploding in popularity. I tell you what, anyone who thinks that people who have used psychedelics or have an interest in psychedelics and have learned about psychedelics are somehow more moral and ethical people. I just, I've been in this field for about 20 years. There's a lot of hatred. (laughs) There's a lot of all the ugly stuff you know, everyone is like grabbing for their, their piece of this. There's people protesting, you know, things where you're, you're not even clear about what's being protested about. You just get the sense that there's like these deeply seated grievances, uh, more about the state of the world. You know, there, there's people with very strong anti-capitalist feelings and that when the company started coming in, it's like psychedelic medicine, you know, has become a target. You know, with all of this, I take a balanced perspective. Yes, when the profit mode comes in, there's it, it opens up on average in a relatively increased concern about those particular perverse contingencies. And that's to be taken account of. But, you know, every communist revolution I've been aware of has been an abysmal failure, to say the least, with 
the death toll in the dozens, if not hundreds of millions. Uh, so, so we, you know, every medical intervention that my any family member that I've gone through has been in the the dirty old for-profit system, you know, that somehow has still helped a lot of people. And yes, we got to be aware of those perverse contingencies. But I can also say I've been around nonprofits, including universities, for my entire career, and the perverse contingencies, you know, they they may just take a different flavor on average, but there are perverse contingencies everywhere. Um, and so I just I think people can be blindsided. I often think of, uh, you know, the psychedelic bard, if you will, I guess, you know, Terrence McKenna, sort of the Tim Leary of the 90s, who who really emphasized this that said, you know, look, psychedelics don't make you better people, <laughs> you know, and that's a real big problem because people think they become better people. I think he said something like that he had just gone through a, a pretty nasty divorce. He said, you know, ask my ex-wife how ethical and how wonderful of a person I am. You know, humans are humans. And that's a real issue with this area. So it went into a lot there. But, you know, I do have some very big concerns about where things are headed. Again, I'm still betting it's going to be more good than bad. But compared to five, 10 years ago, I'm more pessimistic. I'm more concerned about how ugly this is going to get. Wow. Yeah. Th thanks for sharing all that. And I agree with a lot of your sentiments based on as a fairly new person to the space as an outsider who's talked to a lot of researchers and CEOs of different psychedelic assisted therapy companies. Um, I agree. Like I was actually kind of surprised that, you know, for medicines that are described as uh, leading to ego dissolution, you know, dying before you die, essentially, I'm a huge fan of stoicism. There's actually quite a bit of ego. Um, I mean, just we're humans, right? And, and, you know, people like to be tribal and follow a leader uh, we had a guy on the podcast named Scott Carney, uh, who's based out in Denver. He's a friend now. He's written several great books as a medical anthropologist, including The Wedge, where he describes you know, an MDMA couples therapy session he did with his wife, as well as um, his New York Times bestseller was What Doesn't Kill Us, which helped popularize the Wim Hof method. Mm. And, and Wim Hof, who's a cold ice man, they call him. Mm -hmm. And he, he actually introduced me to Wim, I met with Wim, oh, great. Uh, went to his expedition in January in Poland. And I was amazed, you know, he, he oftentimes it's the guru, like he's like, hey, anyone can do this. It doesn't require me to do it. And he said this multiple times, but the natural inclination of the people who attend was to basically uh, deify him, right? Just, uh, you know, one guy had a tattoo of him on his on his leg and took a picture of Wim and the tattoo and whatever he said, it was it felt very much like a new religion, which, you know, I think you're a researcher, you treat these things and we all of us should with appropriate skepticism, most of all, the person leading, you know, hopefully with great, you know, as they say, with great power comes great responsibility. So hopefully that's a message. And you and some other researchers I know who talk about this openly can get that across. Hopefully we can at least check some of those negative impulses or, or, or normal impulses that lead to negative consequences. Um, you know, I think it's a very balanced approach. And I'm glad you, you mentioned that. I think it's the first person on the podcast who's talked openly about some of those kind of more humanistic impulses we have. Yeah. And, and it's, it's very interesting what you say about, you know, Wim, you know, I've never met him and I, you know, I can't claim to be an expert, but I've spent some time and, you know, reading and, and trying the methods. And uh, it's, he seems like a guy that tries his best to not, you know, again, I could, I don't know what I'm not aware of, but uh that he tries to he tries to portray himself as just a regular dude that you know he tells people he's like yeah I drink a Heineken with dinner every night it's like uh, doesn't sound like he's going for the guru you know angle but despite that people just yeah as you're describing you know have that tendency because like psychedelics the things that these experiences this this framework that he has developed and refined from other traditions is is one that can potentially gain access to you know call it what you will the transcendent the spiritual you know mystical the and humans are weird in their orientation towards that and it, it's just the, the blind eye like you know the religious leaders and others like the whenever anyone is seen as the conduit to the you name it god divine mysteries of the universe like there is such a temptation to take advantage of that by that person and for the people surrounding the to conflate 
that individual with the other, with that whatever, that transcendent reality that they may um, believe in. And, and frankly, I think psychedelics are the most extreme, probably, because as yeah. <laughs> as great as breathing techniques are, and <laughs> I mean, when you really compare the stories, I mean, as a technology to induce profoundly altered experiences, I mean, I don't think there's anything beyond the psychedelics. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, it's in their name, their alternative name, entheogen, mm-hmm. right? As you know, well, no better than I do. Uh, you know, it helps you tap into the God within. And uh, if some people tap into the God within, they may ultimately believe they're God. I think, who is it? Uh, maybe Huxley or someone said in Jim Fadiman's book, we had Jim Fadiman on the podcast uh, a year ago, mm-hmm. and his book, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, right. he quoted one of these uh original researchers who said, if you take a little bit of psychedelics, you may believe you can talk to God. If you take a little bit more, you believe God is talking to you. And if you take a lot more, you don't know the difference between you and God. <laughs> so right. um, that that lends itself to this issue. I mean, we have a lot of Israeli medical students who learn by osmosis. And I went to Jerusalem for the first time and there were warning signs everywhere that, hey, if you're feeling faint or you suddenly feel like you're Moses, it's called Jerusalem syndrome. So be on the lookout for this because you may get such a impact from the, I guess, the, the vibe, the energy, your expectations of what Jerusalem is that you could eventually leave and supposedly 50 to 100 people every year succumb to Jerusalem syndrome. And it takes a couple of months for them to get out of it. But some of them, you know, believe that they're prophets. So wow. anyways, there's a lot of interesting stuff there. I'm sure we could talk for a couple hours over that, over some some beer or, or whatever. Um I want to be respectful of your time. So I only had two other questions for you. Mm-hmm. The The first is, you know, what are you working on now? Like, what do you want our audience to know about you, about your research agenda that you're excited about? And, you know, how can they find you and follow up with your, your work? Yeah, I'm, I'm taking my research in, in different directions. Uh, certainly continuing with the smoking cessation work, but I've got some approved uh, protocols. There have been some road bumps, uh, but I, I I've got... Protocols for using LSD to treat FDA approved and IRB approved for LSD to treat uh, chronic pain. People that are misusing opioids to treat chronic pain. So I'm like really excited about about that one. You know, just kind of doing work with LSD, which is a fascinating compound that hasn't been gotten the attention that I think it deserves in this modern research era, as well as addressing anything related to opioid you know use. And certainly chronic pain, obviously such huge, important topics. And if we could find some efficacy there, it could help a lot of people potentially. Um, Another protocol to treat PTSD and another protocol to treat straight up opioid addiction with psilocybin and PTSD with psilocybin. So I'm excited of all that. I am excited about some of these stories the, uh, on the more neurological side, people, you know, athletes claiming uh repair cognitive problems with sports associated with repeated you know head impact there's these very interesting anecdotes but not just the mood and addiction stuff but people saying they feel like their their memory and other aspects of cognition have improved because of psychedelics that could be consistent with some of the neuroplastic findings in animals such as rats um, we don't know if those neuroplastic findings are at play with humans they probably are we don't know exactly what role they play and the, the the therapeutics effects we've seen with the with the number of mental health disorders we've looked at as a field, but um, it, they would certainly um, be relevant, you know, if they're unfolding in humans to, you know, these anecdotes. If there's something real there to, of repair, so you know, it opens up the potential world of oh, is there is there the possibility of helping with stroke recovery? You know, kids that are are born who have gone through hypoxia ischemia you know, infants, you know, like, are these potential technologies that could really help repair the brain at a straight up a neurological level, not just, you know, the treatment of mental health disorders. So um, I, I think that work is uh, fascinating. I hope to get into that um, as time continues. And I'm also just very interested in shining light on some of the topics that in, in in whatever way I can, some of the topics that I've uh, discussed with you, that big picture stuff about where this is going, it's just going to get so weird. And as someone who's obviously believes in the power of this stuff and not operating in a place where I'm just responding to the 
you know, some of the propaganda over the years or just a, an uninformed. I mean, I've seen hundreds of people go through this for a couple of decades now, and I've been in sessions, I've designed studies, I've like talked to, oh gosh, I don't even know, hundreds at least, maybe thousands of people that their stories. Like, I, I, I do feel that I need to spend more time with a focus on helping to navigate how we're going to address those big picture, you know, issues, you know, how do you harness the, (laughs) what many people, you know, believe is a conduit to the sacred, however they define that. And how does that fit into secular medicine? How does that fit into a society where we seem to be primed to, well, into a species, I should say, where we seem to be primed to look for the new religion, look for the new cult leaders. Um, and hopefully, maybe, you know, along with, with others with the same concerns, you know, providing some advice that may be helpful to some people out there to nudge things in in a, in a healthier direction, to, to get as much benefit as we can and to minimize, we're not going to eliminate it, but to minimize some of these you know, these adverse effects and to use in a, uh, you know, a metaphor here, you know, in terms of the society, what are the adverse effects for society and how can we minimize those and maximize the, the positive effects for society? Yeah, it's very nuanced and very exciting. Um, kind of mirrors what's happening with the AI Renaissance revolution right now too, of like, it's a very powerful man-made technology. Well, obviously, Psilocybin is not man-made, but, you know, the studies and the delivery systems and everything around that are human-made um, and maybe too powerful sometimes. And, you know, both psychedelics, AI, and now we have this Christopher Nolan movie on Oppenheimer coming out as a, maybe a reminder of how Oppenheimer kind of regretted what he did there. It's very interesting. And the next couple of years will be fascinating to, to see or partake in. Indeed. My last question for you is... Is there uh, any advice you want to leave our audience with about uh, approaching their careers or changing their careers in some cases? Uh, just advice you'd give to any any mentee of yours. One of the kind of this kind of generic pieces of advice that I think fits into all kinds of uh, niches, no matter what someone's interested in, is if you're looking to do research or, gosh, this not just research, we're at the point where you know just being a straight up clinician, a physician, psychologist you know, social worker, nurse, et cetera, wanting to specialize in psychedelics, like first become an expert in that thing you want to interface with, with psychedelics. So like I tell people, if like, if you have the opportunity to work with someone who's really well established and grounded in their field, let's say you want to use psychedelics to treat PTSD and you have the opportunity to say you're going to grad school as a clinical psychologist or experimental psychologist and you had the opportunity to work with a new, very like gung ho, you know, new assistant professor who's doing something with psychedelics, you know, but it's not very established in the field. And, you know, maybe you'll learn something about PTSD or maybe they're, that's not even their main focus. Maybe they don't know anything about PTSD you know, versus, you know, working with a really established, you know, person, maybe a full professor that not that they have to be, but someone who just, you know, would put you on a really good track record to being a, an expert in PTSD. Do that, even if it means putting your interest in psychedelics on hold, your professional interest in psychedelics on hold. And it's really not that's overstating it. It's not putting your interest on hold. It's just in terms of actually being directly involved with psychedelic work, you can still be interested. You can still read the literature, sow those seeds, but become an expert in PTSD. And then you can wait till your your postdoc or your you know, residency or whatever that next phase of your career is you know, to move into the psychedelics. Um, and, you know, I think as time goes on, it's it's more likely sometimes you don't have to make those trade-offs. Like if you could find the best of both worlds and, you know, jump into the psychedelics more immediately, that's that's great. But that sort of trade-off might show up in more subtle ways, you know, but to, to really just become the best physician of whatever specialty, to become the best psychologist of whatever variety, to become the best social, you know, you name it, and really make yet that your focus rather than letting psychedelics become the exclusive focus and putting your interest and in, in, in your potential to fully develop and be respected in the field and to have, you know, advantages of, of developing that expertise in that, you know, in the area you want to combine with psychedelics. So that's, I think that's important. Um, and then I'd say, you know, uh, just 
you know, try to take a balanced a, a approach to this stuff. Listen to all the voices. I mean, gosh, there's not many left, but like if you, if you meet physicians that were around in the in, in the early 70s, late 60s, who know what it's like when the average dose of LSD on the street was 300 micrograms, way higher than the day. It's like there were some real bad trips, and there were some real. And there still are. It was just more frequently uh, back in the like in those eras. Try to really find the truth, and there's usually at least a kernel of truth into even some of the concerns that that might be blown into propaganda at their most extreme. But you know, it is humbling. I mean, these are powerful tools, and and try to just uh, be familiar with that, and and I guess consistent with that, really. I would advise people to really know the history. I became, especially in the early years, very obsessed with the history of of this of this work. Reading, you know, the classic books. If you're going into psychedelics, you you should know what the NK Ultra program was. You need to read Acid Dreams. You need to know about this very real history. You need to, you know, read the classic Storming Heaven and there's many others. But and then the older literature, scientific literature, those older you know papers. Um, there's a lot of what I've seen is like people might think they're the first coming upon something. And I mean, you just read stuff in papers from the 1950s. It's like, my God, this could be like today. Like we have, and certain things, we haven't figured out anything new. Back in the day when people could just like, oh yeah, we said we were doctors and late 50s Sandoz would say they'd be willing to give some LSD to anyone interested in research. So you just write them, I'm a doctor. And it's like, I want to try it on some patients. Cool. You know, it's like, yeah, there's some, there can be some issues and there were some issues with that but it also was an environment where people were trying wild stuff including very interesting things and they weren't as constrained and so in a sense they were at the cutting edge in terms of really just being able to try stuff clinically that you know we're still not at and i think we'll probably be a little bit back into that once there's approval for mdma and psilocybin and there's all flavor you're still, you're probably going to be back in that to some degree a wild rest will where that there's that clinical experimentation, which is going to come with both good and bad, but here I'm talking about the good. Know that history and you know remind yourself that like this isn't new. And then of course I should also say you know it is different and it's all to be taken in the appropriate context. But you know obviously be familiar with the you know the ancient history of indigenous use and and not that we can use that as a direct role model, but it's relevant and just be as aware as you can about where we came from and where we are now. I love it when I, like I'm writing a paper and I'm like, oh yeah, there's a paper from like 1962 or 1959 that makes this point. And it just remind people like, you know, cite that, you know, to remind people like, yeah, some of this thinking has been around a long time and delve into that history because it could really serve you. Both those are very great advice. And I'll, I'll just respond really quickly before I let you go. But the first is one of the guys I met last week was an author. I had read his book before, Brian Murarescu. Oh, uh, yeah. I know Brian. Great guy. You know Brian. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. The Immortality Key. Excellent book. Talked about the Eleusinian mysteries. And it's interesting because kind of the undertone last week at the conference was that, um, yeah, we could screw it up again, right? Like just like the 60s and 70s, Timothy Leary, like this could go, you know, if it goes bad and gets publicized, it could be put underground again. So a lot of people think about like that history because that's within people's life lifetimes. We had Bill Richards on the podcast two weeks ago. It was within his lifetime. He went to Tim Leary's mansion. So the stories are very interesting, but, and Jim Fadiman too was there. You know, he took mm -hmm. with Ram Dass, he took his first psilocybin experience before going to see Alice Huxley speak in Copenhagen. It's kind of cool that we're within arm's reach of that still. But the Eleusinian mysteries, of course, we weren't. And so it was like that was even before. And there's probably hundreds of examples of that emerging, you know, right. uh, birthing, rebirthing and dying. And so this could happen. This will happen again eventually. It's just a matter of, of time. Yeah, the rug being pulled out, it, the, 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 the late 60s wasn't the first time when that happened. If, like you're saying, my take is, I think consistent with Brian's take, uh, we still don't know definitively, but... I, my take would be, maybe I should only put this in my words, it seemed more likely than not that there was an ergot derivative, a very LSD-like compound at the at the heart of the, you know, that was the Kaikion, that, that was at the heart of the Eleusinian mysteries. And so if that was the case, then yeah, the church came in and like, you know, even though I had gone on, what, hundreds or I think even thousands of years that the rug was pulled out then for centuries. So yeah. 
it's dark ages same yeah. same thing for a lot of different things not just psychedelics but literature and you know women's rights i mean all sorts of things have gone through phases right and the second one this is interesting when i was in israel last year i met um uh, in Tel Aviv, the founder of Waze, a really cool guy named Yuri Levine. And he just came out with a book this past year called Fall in Love with the Problem, Not the Solution, which I think speaks to your first point, which is psychedelics could be a solution for things, right? They could also be a problem, but they, you know, right now, a lot of people, they seem to be wanting to enter the field. I want to do psychedelics and whatever it is. So I want to use the solution for whatever problems are out there. Mm. But your take is similar to his, which is the problem is PTSD, right? That's a problem. So there could be 10 different interventions for it, psychedelics being one of them. So fall in love deeply with the problem, understand PTSD deeply, and then, you know, let, let that guide you on what the solutions may be, as opposed mm. to the other way around of like, I love this psychedelic solution. Let me, you know, figure out, I have a hammer, everything's a nail. Let me figure out how to solve everything. But um, I think just the nuance that you've expressed here, I think is important. Mm-hmm. If the idea is to, you know, to have a powerful tool to probe the mind, if you want to put it that way, or to probe this interface between experience and the nervous system. It's like, yes, even with that, psychedelics are a tool, but it doesn't, it may, you know, lead to other and interactive with other tools as ways to explore that interface and address those more basic questions. So even that, like, yeah, what you're saying is, is I think, right on. It's like to focus on the problem, like what you know, and, and in many cases, psychedelics may be the thing that is the the most fruitful way to make forward, but it may not always, you know, be, and it may not be the only thing, and it might be interactive, and it there might be more about the ways. Something other things like we're still in our infancy in terms of how we're using psychedelics. It's like there's virtually zero science on how to conduct different styles of therapy with psychedelics. It's like so that's an example of what you're talking about. Like even with that, just like hey. If, Rather than you know all the studies being about psychedelic versus placebo or this psychedelic versus that psychedelic, what about the same psychedelic therapy with I don't know, cognitive behavioral therapy versus motivational enhancement therapy or like what for addiction for example or mm. it, there's basically no research at all like that you know so yeah focus on the on the problem however you define that I think those are inspiring words to end on for our audience so. Matt, I really want to thank you for your time on this podcast. Thanks for going over, but also more importantly for the work that you've done directly to help uh, lead to this renaissance that has so much potential for smoking cessation and many other conditions. Oh, thanks. It's been a pleasure uh, chatting with you and thanks for your focus on this, on the psychedelic topic. appreciate it. Totally. And with that, I'm Shivaglani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise line and strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>